0: Hi, everyone. My name's Michael Frazes. Uh, I'm going to give you a bit of an update uh, on financial markets today, on the fund, what we've been buying, what we've been looking at. Uh, it's kind of the 20th of September. Um, I'll also include some charts of things that aren't particularly related to what we're doing, but I think interesting in any case. Um, so I'll share the screen now. Okay, so this is us. We're now sitting at 29% um, annualized net performance since inception, just under 20% outperformance versus the local index. Uh, the reason we focus on that is that is where most Australian share capital is invested. Um, so I think one of the things that I think Aussies would do better if they did more of was invest less in uh, the ASX 200 and more in the fastest growing, most love tech businesses um, that we like and that, that are doing so much to kind of push our society forward. Um, we're sitting at just shy of 100 mil. We crossed it briefly uh, last week. Um, The median market cap is actually over 20 billion now. It's kind of three statistics that we measure across the portfolio. And I think these are kind of interesting because we always get asked about market timing and how, how, how we're positioned and how things kind of look. So the organic growth rate is tracking at 130%. That's weighted according to the size of each position. So that's roughly like if you considered our our portfolio as one company um, would have 50 divisions, all of them on average growing 130% year on year based on their latest results. Some of them are actually a lot faster. For example, we, we, include, we exclude things like Moderna and companies that have immense revenues this year that had nothing last year. If we included those, the, the percentage change would be too ridiculous. Um, so that doesn't really include those at the, at the true number. Our companies are also 34% down, from their 52-week highs. So there's been a really strong rally in the NASDAQ 100, driven by Facebook, Google, Amazon, Apple. Um, It's really funny, like, the reason people often ask if we invest in those companies, and I always say that I think you should invest in the NASDAQ 100. I think that's better than picking any of them. And a good example of that is, I don't think anyone would have picked Facebook as being such a strong performer. But the advantage of investing in an index like that is you you get all of them and they all pay off at different times. Uh, And the growth rate is pretty good. I mean, it's nothing like 130%. um, And we have very little overlap with the NASDAQ. So we're definitely a useful adjunct to that. Um, But it's a strong index. Um, But the reason I mentioned it was that is kind of relatively close to highs, whereas the small to mid-cap growth companies that we invest in still down like a third from where they were in February. And that number is kind of a good indication. As good indication you'll get as any of kind of how hot the market is. You know, so if, if companies are on average in a sector down 50%, you know there's been a big sell-off. Um, similarly, if everything's right at its 52-week high, you know the market's running pretty hot. 34% down is, is, is a pretty significant drawdown for an average. Um, we're about 10% away from our, our own 52-week high. Uh, And we also invert that. So if you think about it, we're down a third for for the portfolio companies all to reach new highs, which given they're growing 130%, will almost certainly happen at at some point, we believe. Um, That number is 50%. So 34% down, 50% up. We also did some analysis on where our returns have come from over the years. So this is kind of our attribution. So you'll see the Biggest loser was macro and hedging, which is minus 3%. I've just kind of like lumped everything that's not a stock, more or less, into that. Because um, we used to do a lot of shorting, a lot of hedging, a lot of stuff that didn't really pay out. Or rather, sometimes it paid, sometimes it didn't. Overall, it was a, it was a small detractor. Um, but you can see that our biggest contributors were, you know, Afterpay, 16.6%. 13%. Moderna, about 13%. Covana 12%. It's been very broad-based. Hasn't just been one company that's, you know, hit the lights out um and actually the most we've lost on a stock is 3.3 which is bluebird bio which was actually taught us a lot that was a company that was the leader in 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 genetic engineering um and had all this promise but then really under in a couple ways firstly there were safety issues secondly they couldn't figure out how to get people to pay so the idea was okay we'll charge a million dollars you know that kind of ballpark for a treatment uh, but to make it more palatable you can spread it over five years and you only have to pay if it works. The problem was it's the sticker shock was still too high. Um, insurance companies didn't want to pay it. Um, and also it was also terrible news for the stock because investors were like, wait, so you're actually pushing out the revenues by five years that we thought were coming in like one or two years' time. Um, so that caused a huge derating. And then, you know, recent safety issues have caused, you know, yet another derating. And it really highlights how difficult genetic engineering is. Um, and how powerful those tools are, like mRNA, RNAi, that don't actually mess with the genome. You know, it's much harder to get off-targets effects, much harder to cause cancer, things like that. Um, and that's been an issue with all kinds of genetic engineering for 20 years, and that's whether it's zinc fingers, viruses, uh, CRISPR, they all have these same problems. That they're, they're pretty dangerous stuff. You're messing with people's genomes. Um, I thought i mentioned we've done a lot of work in the life sciences. So basically you run the numbers on how much we put into IPOs and pre-IPOs. So roughly um, for every dollar that's invested in us, you know, a year and a half ago, say, 75 cents of that went directly into commercialization of research. By that I mean we gave it to companies um, or rather it participated in capital raises and IPOs and such. Um, I, I draw that distinction because it's different if you have two funds trading with each other. Like, let's say we buy some Afterpay shares or Moderna shares off another fund and then sell them back to the market. You know, it's that those trades are basically zero-sum. Um, the markets aren't zero-sum in total, obviously, because there's all this value um, and so many new companies have been funded. This is this is one of those interactions with, like, the real world where the money actually goes into the company and is spent. Uh, so through a period of pretty significant performance, we've managed to uh, use that capital in such a way that, that. The majority of it, certainly a lot more than half of it, went into companies commercializing medical research. And that's our goal. So hopefully over two or three years, actually more than 100% of every dollar that's, that's invested with us goes towards commercialization. That's like a key goal for us. Kind of, you know, We find it interesting. It's exciting. Um, it gives us a pretty important reason for doing what we're doing as well. As part of that, we also funded a PhD fellowship. So I'll write a blog post about this because it's really interesting. But basically, it's uh, being run by Professor Stephen Tisch at St. Vincent's Hospital. And there's like a rare disease um, called dystonia, which affects professional musicians, you know, potential like professional typewriters, calligraphers, golfers on their parts. And basically the nerves, it's like the rep- repetitive movement creates like a knot of nerves. Um, and people just can't play that note or they can't hold that pen or they can't make that putt, which is pretty, um, pretty awful if you've been you know, rehearsing for 30 years and all of a sudden you can't play piano. It's also one of those things where there's basically um, there's no commercial. It's hard to see a commercial angle. It's not really something that's going to make a lot of money. It's a tiny market. It's still going to require a lot of research. Things aren't easy to treat because there's less people that have them. Um, if anything, they're harder because it's harder to recruit patients for trials. That's, and, and there's certainly significantly less funding. So when we when we do things um, that are more philanthropic, I think that's the kind of thing you want to do. You know, those things that don't really have a commercial angle. This this is our own money. This isn't from the fund, obviously. And we definitely want to do more of that in the future. And firstly, it's interesting. It's the right thing to do. Or secondly, it's the right thing to do. But thirdly, it kind of like gives us a good reason to speak to people. It's, it's one thing to call up you know, an, an academic expert just ask for their advice on something. It's another thing if you're actually contributing to things that they... that, that are most meaningful to them and helping them with their research. That's how you can form much deeper, um, richer relationships. And we're going to do a lot more of that um, if we're lucky to continue the success that we've had in the past. Um, there's a couple of generic slides that we have. So we obviously invest in companies with true customer love and explosive growth. I think every kind of month that goes by, there's more evidence of how powerful that framework is, whether you're looking at a cryptocurrency or comparing two stocks or comparing, you know, two industries. Um and we're up to ten companies that have done five times or more. And hopefully we'll be able to fill out that chart and get to 15 times. I thought I'd share something I just find amusing. So obviously about a year ago it became, I mean, this this has been building for a long time, this ESG angle, Uh, we have our own take on ESG. Like I just talked about, you know, the work that we do in in funding PhD fellowship and more importantly, actually just putting money into, into very risky early stage companies, doing so profitably, generating a good return, but making sure basically like the majority of our money goes into those kinds of things, into those companies where they can spend it on research. Um, but it's still amusing when you see things like over the last year, coal prices have gone up more than three times, caught the entire professional community offside. Um, this is like a longer chart, longer-term chart. You can see there's huge volatility in this thing. You know, my views on this are, this are mixed. Obviously, you know, we invest... One of our big thematics is renewable energy, and we, we invest heavily in that. And obviously, a green world is just so much more elegant, so much more beautiful and, and the right thing to do. But at the same time, there are complications, you know? I mean... If you are poor in a developing country and fuel is two-thirds of your budget, should you impoverish somebody and ask them to pay more for their energy? I'm not sure. I think there's complications. But in this case, I just thought it was amusing that the professional um, investors just leapt into ESG and then missed one of these these huge return opportunities. Now, we don't invest in coal um, and won't, but it's just there for interest. Uh, iron ore had a pretty big sharp up would rise and fall. There is there is one relevance and that's the effect on currency. So for us, we're basically hedged, which is annoying at times. I mean, this is a 15 year chart. So you can see from 2009, 2010, I guess the Aussie dollar peaked around 2011 in, at $1.10. There are a lot of funds that built their track records from say, just after the financial crisis to today. And they had a huge 50% tailwind from FX. And in many cases they were able to run extremely low risk portfolios and, you know, I think it came to something like 7% or 8% a year at one point last year. So you could run a 5%, 6% return portfolio, get 7 or 8% from the currency, tell everybody you're at 15% net, and then attract huge inflows. And it was even better than that because every time there was a risk-off period, you, you got money from the currency. Your return came from then. So last year in coronavirus, these unhedged funds did extremely well because the Aussie dollar collapsed, you know, 15%, 20%, and they got that kicker. Uh, of course, they then lost it shortly after. And it's amazing how many people didn't really understand that. I think it's one of those little secrets of the industry where you're an insider. It's so obvious when you're a sophisticated business person who's been extremely successful in another field and you're investing in other um, in funds, that dynamic might not be so obvious. And it's very easy to be led astray by um, those returns. So our approach is we're basically hedged Um which is annoying because we don't get that amazing tailwind when markets sell off, but also means we're not caught offside like like f- some funds were last year when there's these huge reversals from, you know, 56 cents to 80 cents, which is what happened. Um, but it does mean we, we we do pay some attention to what's going on in commodity prices and the Aussie dollar. And actually the real driver is, commodity prices are a driver, but the real driver is usually the Aussie dollar and the US, sorry, Australian two-year interest rates and US two-year interest rates to first approximation. Generally, currencies follow that. And typically, the Aussie dollar's yield has been much higher. So in this chart, when the Aussie dollar was riding, riding flight, riding high, flying high, either of those two. Um, basically, what was happening, Australian yields were still super high, like 3 4%, maybe even 5% at one point. Um, but in the aftermath of the GFC, uh, in the US and the UK, interest rates were basically zero, which meant the Aussie dollar had this huge tailwind. And that was kind of um, a great example of how interest rates can be such key drivers, because there was that carry, carry trade. Um, but obviously, as Australia's kind of run into its own difficulties, particularly in coronavirus, um, and our interest rates got slashed effectively to zero um, or close enough to that, then caused a huge drop in the Aussie dollar. That interest, r- interest rate differential didn't exist. There was no reason to stay in the trade. Um, yeah, again, these are things that aren't super relevant. I mean, they are, they are relevant to the fund's performance, but I'm just kind of introducing them as things of interest that we're looking at. What's said Open Opendoor? So Opendoor is something I've been watching for a while. There was a really interesting value point. It kind of sold off a lot. Basically, Opendoor, there's kind of three industries that were really resistant to e-commerce, and that was cars. And obviously, we did uh, just under about 10 times, I think, in Carvana. Which, which basically moved, you know, um, it was in the early stages still of moving auto dealerships from, from offline to online. Um, it's luxury fashion, so we did pretty well out of Farfetch and much better out of Satire. who just started to crack that online luxury fashion, like that high end luxury. Um, the other industry that's been extremely resilient is real estate. Um, where very high commissions are paid, it's still not really a kind of internet business. So there's a couple of companies working on that. Opendoor is one, which is, which is the largest. Basically, they'll give you a guaranteed price minus 7%. So they'll estimate the value of your, your, your home based on where it is, its size, all that kind of thing. Um, it's obviously an algorithmic thing that can get better and better and better. And they can use all kinds of transaction data in the suburb for similar houses and also for that particular house if it's been traded a number of times to get a rough idea of, of quality. Um, and then that 7% margin is, is is what they'll capture. When you think about what agents take, particularly in the US, we have a buyer's and a seller's agent, that's usually quite significant. Um, and then the fact that you don't have to go through the whole process, they'll just give you an offer uh, and you get the cash super quickly and it's just done, it's just easier. It's um, so growing super, super fast, so 59% bigger um, over the last three months. So quarterly growth of 59%, which is strong. It's going to be a long time before this kind of model makes, makes any kind of revenue. Look, we're, we're, I was originally quite sceptical about this model because it means you're always going to have a large inventory of, of homes. And so when the market turns, you're always going to be holding the bag. Um, so you just have to make sure that 7% or whatever the price differential is enough. Um, but it has been kind of tested now. You know, it's not as new as it used to be. And coronavirus was probably a pretty good test to that. And you can also see on the left-hand side, actually these charts. Um, I'll put this on the podcast. People who are listening but not watching won't be able to see, but you can see it's gone from something like four times sales, four and a half times sales, down to one point low ones, one point two times sales. So a huge contraction in 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 effective multiple that you're paying for it. And then analyst estimates have been dramatically revised upwards as well. It's got accelerating accelerating fundamentals, uh, a multiple that's dropped by three quarters. And that makes a really interesting entry point, a really interesting value entry point. Um, so this is one of our, our new companies. Upstart's another one we looked at. I mean, we've been aware of this company for a while. It's, it's something that kind of caught Twitter, the financial Twitter's imagination. So people always tweeting at us, telling us we should look. Uh, We did eventually look, or we we did look and the latest results were just outstanding. You know, it was something like, um, I guess it was 10 times year on year, quarterly was much less, but extremely strong. Basically, they can use their AI. It's a lending platform, capital light, but they can give loans extremely quickly with much lower loss rates, um, much higher satisfaction and, and generally lower interest rates as well. And this is, it's, this is basically how lending should be done. It should be done fast, automatically. People's credit rating should matter, but it should be one input. Um, we really like it. I think there's huge growth in all markets for this kind of lending. I mean, lending's hard because it's very easy to grow a lending book because all you need to do is effectively give out money. There's plenty of people who will take it. But, you know, in Australia, for example, there's Judo Bank, which is doing really well with business loans. So the traditional banks probably got a bit too conservative and extremely bureaucratic um, around small and medium-sized businesses getting loans. And really, if, you, if if you can if you get a loan, a small loan, pay and can pay it back, there's no real reason not to extend a little bit more credit. Um, Upstart's probably one of the the more advanced lending businesses uh, when it comes to the use of artificial intelligence and the modern tools of the internet to you know grow a book. So. It's growing super fast. You can see here on the bottom right, if it maintains, you know, a fifty percent growth rate and its current multiple, we'll get something like four and a half, five times return over five years. Um, in reality, it's growing at much faster than that and could actually average higher, uh, which would put you in the kind of six, seven, eight times range uh, for a five-year return multiple. I mean, five years is a long time, but it's also not not that long as well. Um, I thought I'd pause there. We've got 77 participants. Are there any questions from anyone? What are your thoughts on OneView Healthcare's half-year results? We're actually not in this currently, so I can't give you a, um, a firm answer on that. I think, interestingly, digital health has gone absolutely smacked lately. So you see Teladoc is more than halved um, in Australia what is that company called? Dr. Care Anywhere posting triple-digit returns, huge net cash has dropped from you know $1.50, $1.60 down to 80 cents. For some reason of all the coronavirus trades that have reserve, reversed, it seems like digital health has been one of the hardest hit. Um, so the next step for that will be interesting. They're all kind of posting pretty good growth numbers still as in their quarterly growth is high. So there could actually be an opportunity there. I mean, we own one of them. We basically sold out of Teladoc because they, because it was a poorly digested um, acquisition of Lavongo. Lavongo slowed down. It's not clear where the value sits. You know, is is that digital health player, they're basically just going to be connecting doctors and then like wh- where is the value going to sit in that chain? Is that... Is offering that video service is that completely commoditized like is that something people can basically do for free that that's that's the challenge that's really facing those companies but you know that we always take the view that follow the data not your opinions or not what you think don't try and assess things how they are look for the evidence look for the clarity and so far you know the the results have been pretty resilient so that could be an opportunity there what do you think of points bet so we owned PointsBet a while ago. We've decided not to invest in gambling since then. Um, PointsBet's a tough one. I mean, they've done it's great execution. It's, it's one of those greenfield opportunities, but our issue with with that is that at some point there will be consolidation. And so at the moment, everyone or for for some time, everyone's been able to grow as new states in the U.S. Um, opened up to sports betting. But the problem with sports betting. It's it's a pretty tough market. There's not much customer loyalty. It's extremely price sensitive. In Australia and the UK, they're not amazing businesses. You know, they're not super profitable. Basically, you think about the industry's profitable before incentives, before you start giving people free bets, before you start trying to properly compete and bring people to your platform. And that's where sports gambling gets gets tough and competitive. And so in, in mature markets, you, you don't look at sports betting in mature markets and think, actually, this is an amazing business. At the moment, they're posing extraordinary growth. Um, there's a lot of companies posing extraordinary growth due to the fact that the United States you know the biggest consumer market in the world just opened up for sports betting business um, but it wasn't clear to us it's not clear to to me how that settles at maturity um, but I've in those in these greenfield opportunities there'll be huge fortunes made um, it's just hard to see the end game and that's aside from the gambling aspect that's kind of something that we couldn't quite figure out on points bet. Do we still hold Gardent and DermTech? Yes. Garden has been solid lately. DermTech is off little. I think Garden's up roughly twice from when we bought it. Um, it's probably in line with the portfolio. Uh, they're both in that kind of genetic testing for cancer space. So DermTech's the one that's a piece of sticky tape, put it on a suspicious mole um, and you can get that tested, uh, which is just another tool in the dermatologist toolkit. Um, it's somewhere, it's it's less invasive than doing, cutting a bit of it out um, and sending it off. And it's also more accurate than just visually inspecting it. So it's kind of in that middle space uh, and is probably, you know, the future. It's just much more elegant way of doing it, but it's still early stage. So you can't really, you know, you're getting the support from all the key dermatolo- dermatological groups and key opinion leaders, but it's not at that point where it's delivering yet. Um, so, yeah, I think you have to be in that for the long haul or not in it. I don't think it's something you want to be in for short-term results. Guardant is progressing. Uh, this is a company that's focusing on blood tests for cancer. Um, there's a couple of them doing it now. There's, there's, there's a few companies doing it. It's, all, it's a space that's heating up. It's a huge market. I do know at the end of that market, there will be a huge amount of money being made. Um, it's much clearer that... And they're all going for slightly different conditions, different tests... Uh, there's a good chance there'll be multiple winners there. Um, so we're just holding. It's not a large position for us. But again, like, like DermTech, we're in for the long long run. So in a year's time, you should be able to check in with us and we should still be holding both of those. Comment between recent company, Abcellera Biologics and Moderna. Uh, I think it's interesting that Moderna is not on a crazy acquisition path. Um, let me get back to you on that. I'll write about that next time. David White, about 25% of portfolio in life sciences. None of the top 10 contributors, most of the top 10 detractors were life sciences. Uh, that isn't actually true. So Moderna was one of our top contributors. Um, it was the third best contributor. And actually we have made a fair bit in smaller. For example, um, Garden won't even make that cut. Uh, and a lot of the kind of cap raise stuff we've done has, has made pretty good money there as well. So actually, if you add up one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, if you add up the one winner, the amount we made from Moderna, that's already more than all of our top 10 losers minus the macro hedging. Is that correct? That's probably close to correct. So you can see still in, in an example where you've actually lost money in a bunch of little things. Um, You can get one thing right, and that more than pays for it. And I'd say actually, that's this year. This year has been it's been a huge benefit. A lot of those companies we actually owned a while ago. um, And there's actually only Bluebird Bio, one, two, three, four, five. Yeah, I guess half the bottom 10 contributors came from life sciences. But, you know, that's a game you play. I mean, we've made money out of the sector. It's been hugely helpful for us this year. It's why, you know, we've basically delivered solid returns over a period where a lot of our growth periods are down. You know, Cathie Wood's actually down. It's, it's been life sciences that has driven it. Um, I think the problem with life sciences, it's risky and it's difficult and it's hard. And so it's it's not as easy as buying a software company. If you bought any software company basically over the last over the life of the fund, none of them would have. You'd have to be really unlucky to find a single one that you know, lost money in the bottom 10 contributors. Um, but it's probably the most valuable stuff we do. Um, it's been very it's 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 helped us out at times like this year. Um, and overall has been really profitable. I think another issue is back then we had bigger positions. So three years ago, we'd often have 5% positions, our biggest positions were 15-20%, and then you can lose a lot of money. At the moment, our position size average is two or three percent. And so it's very hard firstly for any of our companies to make it onto these top 10 or bottom 10 contributor lists. You know they basically have to 10x now at or certainly you know 5x um, to really move the needle if it's a one two percent position. Um, which fortunately we found a few. But similarly, when we lose these days, we don't lose two or three percent. We generally lose you know almost 10 times less than that. So it's an interesting one, but good observation. Are you planning on taking advantage of current dip in market? We're kind of fully invested. We're not making any huge moves, I'm not planning on making any huge moves at the moment. Just constantly reassessing everything. What are the risk management strategies when if market turns? So the way you are going to think about our fund is we're fully invested. So we don't the the play that we're making is that actually we'll outperform by staying fully invested and not not spending money every every year on hedging, or not arbitrarily deciding that we think the market's going up, down or sideways. Generally trying to avoid making huge shifts in the portfolio. That in the so far, is, that has that is like driven our returns. And there's been multiple twists and turns in markets. Um, people often, often when things look scariest, that's actually very close to the low and returns are highest after that. Often when things look safest, and everyone's piling in, that's when you're about to take a 30% hit on the nose. Um, Sometimes things have rallied hard and you think it makes sense to take things off. But as we saw last year, that might be the beginning of a, of a, of a huge run. Um, it's, not, it's not easy to do that stuff. You have to kind of make your decision how you want to do it. You can play it super safe and you say, actually, I'm going to mostly sit in cash, and maybe a little bit of stock. You can say, okay, I'm going to buy a lot of stock, but I'm going to hedge. But then they're often the worst strategies because you, you can still get things wrong and hedging is because everybody wants to do it. It's massively overpriced. Um and then because you're always hedging, you never get those really strong years that kind of make up for, for periods of flatness and weakness. Um this is this I firmly believe and would happily argue with anybody that this is the optimal strategy over 30-40 years. Don't spend money on hedging because 34 years of hedging costs can wipe out your profits. Don't short because you can't consistently short for 30 or 40 years. I'm not sure it'd be hard to consistently short five years, you know, that would be kind of market leading. Um, if anyone's actually been able to achieve that. The best shorters in the world um, often you know what was, what was that guy's name? The guy that shorted Enron briefly escapes me. but his personal funds are invested in two times s p one times short. So even like the most um, Kinnecos associates is called, even like the most famous short seller is actually two ta- is actually long net long equities. So I I I always find that super fascinating when I heard it because I assumed that he had made all his money on the short side, but it's not true. He made his money by being long on the index and then the shorts just occasionally added a lot of alpha um, and allowed him to carry a larger long position in equities. It kind of tells you all you need. Um, There's a question about customer love and life sciences. Uh, I think you need to come to... I think you still need that customer love. It's just kind of the doctors. So the DermTech example is one. You have to win the hearts and minds of the dermatologists that are making the decision. You can, you can use the same framework. Very crass. How's the recent move back into China tech progressed? Well, most of it we bought pretty much at the lows. So, for example, Pinduoduo we bought at 78, 90. It's now like 100. Um, the two brokers that we bought, they haven't performed. They're kind of pretty, still pretty close to the lows. Um, Pinduoduo went up. Uh, another one's still off a bit. Yeah, has, I wouldn't say it's paid off yet, but all up, we've probably, we're, we're definitely up on those additional purchases. And the portfolio's held up because life sciences and things like that have, have worked. But again, on the life sciences points, we have, probably have 11 life sciences companies. And, and so the average position size, if you think Moderna's one of the largest ones as well, if you take that out, position size there is really small. Um, but, but as a group, they've, they've been super helpful. Hmm, Active Port IPO. I haven't looked at that one, unfortunately. I'm actually wrap up there. Are there any more questions? Oh, there's a whole nother set of them. What do you think of developer tools, ecosystem, DevOps? Yeah, they're great, great businesses. MongoDB was a really good software um, play for us. It's like a database that's really good. Um, They're amazing businesses. I'd say like it's pretty hard to find good opportunities in the listed markets though. The VCs are getting to them early, catching a few years of growth, listing them at crazy multiples. And now everybody's really well aware of how valuable these things are. Um, they get really full prices. And honestly, you know, you're going to get two, three times probably if you hold them for five years. Um, but they're not – what you want to do is get them at like six-time sales, not at like 26-time sales. So it's hard. They're the best businesses. They're mostly fully valued. What is an odd source that looks good at the moment? Camplify and Setar are two favorites at the moment. They both seem to be going pretty well. Um, Setar is pretty big. It's like over 5% now. I think it's up. Well, I guess we bought our first shares at $0.50 cents in the IPO. It's now $3.90 or something. Um, Camplify has gone from $1.40 to, say, $2.70, just under a 2x, um, if I'm correct. But I actually think, I th- I think Camplify is interesting because it's a fast growing platform for RVs, but it's also a recovery play. It's so hard to find a good recovery play that's also got amazing secular growth that ticks all our boxes, Campify does. Um, I wish we had a bigger position. We're actually in the process of buying more of that. Any thoughts on Megaport? Uh, Every time I look at it, it seems good, but for whatever reason, don't have a position in it. Um, it's, It's complicated, complicated company actually. Took a while to even figure out, took me a while to figure out what exactly they do. Cloud in general, cloud is amazing. Again, some of the best, many of the best businesses in the world are cloud businesses. Um, we made some money in that, but we weirdly we really didn't own much software, which is good and bad. It's good because most of the high-returning tech funds have got most of their performance from software. Um, the big, the, the one that we probably made most out of is zero, because it was local and we we're aware of it a few years ago. Um But it's hard to find a a good, fast-growing cloud company that's not trading at 40 or 50 times. You know, if they're at 10 times, yeah, that'd be our biggest positions. I mean, looking at other cloud infrastructure companies like Snowflake, Confluent. Yeah, Snowflake's super interesting because it's one of those 100X sales ones. And I just wanna see it play out. Like, we don't have a position. I just wanna see what happens. Um, My guess is it kind of goes sideways and then eventually makes money after two or three years of sideways action. As, as the multiple compressors. Um, but again, like, no question about the quality of the business, it's one of the highest. Do you see China positions as trading or long-term holds? Uh, long-term. I mean, we actually don't have, the biggest positions we had were in, in Asian brokers. Uh, and they're not just China stocks. You know, they're roughly 50%, say, in China, the rest in, I guess, Chinese diaspora, countries like Singapore. Um, they're still growing at prodigious rates. It's not a trading thing. I think I talked a bit about it because we had something, I think we had something to say and I think everyone was being very negative. And it was also one of those, if there's something big happening in markets, I feel like it's interesting to put pen to paper or write some thoughts out and say what, you, what you're thinking. Um, and if you see a, an opportunity, take that opportunity obviously as well. That's kind of why we wrote about it a couple of times. Um, but it's the same thing. These are fast growing companies. To give you an example, you know we bought Pinduor at twenty three bucks. We increased all the way down to eighteen nineteen. Pretty sure we're 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 buying it like very close to the lows, if not at the lows, you know, three years ago. And then it went all the way up to two hundred, then down to eighty bucks, and then and up to one hundred. So from our lo- it's up four to five times from our initial purchases after a huge correction when significant parts of the investment community decided that China was uninvestable. So just keep in mind, you know, all it took was just a few short years. When was it, 2019, it's 2021 still. I think we bought we would have bought kind of early 2019. Um, it's 2021 now, maybe two and a half years later, and you've made four or five times when literally everything political, macroeconomic thing could go wrong. And so you can make money using our thing. You have to be long-term. It's not a short-term, trade, um, having made the decision to invest long-term, we're certainly, it'd take a lot to then go, actually, there's a short-term position, we're gonna flick it. You know, The number's are still good, still growing, still hitting everything we wanna see, but because of the new cycle, because some other industries got hit, because there's regulatory tension, which we've kind of described in the past, Most is mostly kind of productive for society, I'd say, um, for Chinese society. You don't you don't want to change course just because stuff like that happens. You know, I know. I, th- I think we lost. Yeah. I know there's very strong opinions on that, and I guess it's also front of mind because because of all that kind of geopolitical tension. obviously, Australia just um, looks like we'll be getting nuclear submarines and uh, cancelling that big French contract. Um, all kinds of reasons not to buy companies, but then there the I still think the companies are are supreme. Um, and again, it's really. You know, our biggest position there is in the brokers, which are Hong Kong listed as well, and and don't just get their revenues from China. At some point, I can almost guarantee—I can't guarantee you—I can almost guarantee you, or say there's a very good chance that sentiment will, at some point in the next five years, as icy cold as it now, be red hot and people will be climbing to get into these super fast growing tech companies, um, in a population that's extremely tech enabled and tech forward, and you'll get a similar swing up, and then everyone will be like. I'm a China expert and I'm buying Alibaba. I'm going to hold it. This is like my number one stock for the next 20 years, like they were literally a year ago. Um, And then that's probably, again, that's when you should be worried. So it's a bit different. Anyway, that's how we're looking at it. Would eyewear replace mobiles? Uh, I'm trying to think if I've got anything interesting or novel to say on the topic. It's hard to see, isn't it? It's hard to see. What were the issues last time? Google Glass was a bit uncool. Also, people didn't like the idea that they're constantly being filmed. Uh, it'd be interesting to know if today when so many things are filmed all the time, everyone's got their camera out taking photos of things, um, if that's changed, if people were more open to treating... I think it would always be in the back of your head if you're like just meeting someone, shaking their hand, and they've got some kind of glassware that you know is could well be recording them. Um, hmm. Phones are pretty good, pretty convenient. They're just in your hand, big screens. You can get it out, take a photo, put it away. Seems pretty convenient. Uh, Let me have a think and see if there's anything interesting I can think of. Any thoughts on the recent Canva valuation? Actually, Canva's an interesting point. It's relevant for us because it's a company that stayed private. So obviously, if we had any chance to invest in that in the listed markets, we would have. It's every single one of of our things, like true customer love, explosive growth, doing something cool and exciting. Um, if you think about the comparison to Afterpay, so Afterpay kind of made a ton of retail investors money. Canva did not. Canva kind of made a bunch of VCs a lot of money, and obviously a lot of the VCs investors and investors are uh, institutions and endowments and super funds. So it's not all bad, but it, they certainly didn't it didn't give an opportunity for that for that huge retail um, cash bonanza, which is a shame. We find that we get asked a lot if that's going to happen more often. And there's no doubt that did happen for a while. So Airbnb, Uber, Canva, these are companies we would have absolutely invested in much, much earlier than, than when they're listed. I mean, Canva's case hasn't list, listed. And it would have just been us. You know, typically it's the, the institutions, the hedge funds are net short these things or, or certainly have short positions in these companies. Retail investors love, this, love the story, love the company and buy them, make a ton of money. I think it's a shame that... um. Shame that it stayed private. Uh, but, you know, triple-digit growth in a widely loved company, they, they, if they maintain that for any period of time, the valuation will be extremely justified. Um, and full respect to them for for committing to donate such a huge chunk of their shares uh, to charitable Foundation. So they'll be able to do a huge amount of good there. And the Australian ecosystem is really picking up, isn't it? You know, it used to be kind of Blackbird, Square peg, small number of VC funds, uh, maybe a handful of effectively state-backed funds that would might do by life sciences. Now this seems to be a real ecosystem. A lot of people made money out of, um, like, cash money, like exited money out of Afterpay. Um, there's a bunch of small, not small companies, there's a bunch of listed companies that have done exceptionally well. Uh, it really seems like there's a ton of, of opportunity and, and a lot of capital and there's like this pull factor you know the more money there is the easier it is for people to to set up companies um there's definitely and i think it's the best thing about silicon valley is how much money there is just sloshing around how easy it is for people to get started i was having a chat with a, a friend of mine who is hyper intelligent <laughs> we're kind of like we really graduated at this awful moment where we're kind of like the back end like when we were at university the cool thing was to go into finance um but probably it was only two or three years later that that all started really changing. Um, yeah, that would have been uh, I think I'm sure all the smart kids today, uh, are very tech focused, um, rather than financially focused. Uh, is there anything else? Thoughts on creator comedy, Fiverr, Upwork. Yeah. Pretty, pretty positive. Fiverr we've looked at and it just sold off. Um, Fiverr is on our kind of buy list. If you think about the kind of five to 10 stocks we're thinking of buying, Fiverr is on there. Um, just haven't made a call to pull the trigger on that yet. How are we going for time? 41 minutes. Um, if there's no more questions, I might wrap up there. Uh, thanks for listening in. Hopefully that was helpful. I tried to answer everything. Um, if you want more information, I'd ask, feel free to reach out to me directly, michael at franzcapitalpartners.com. Um, and obviously we'll try and do these at least semi-regularly. So if you send through any questions, that's always much appreciated. It's much more interesting. I think for everybody, uh, it keeps me thinking as well, cause I have to answer these questions. Um, so thanks again and hope you enjoyed the rest of your day.